swimming, there are three ways you can get into the water. You can ease yourself into it, which means if you're at a pool, you get in the shallow end and kind of slowly work your way down into the water, or at the lake, you gradually go down the beach and into the water. Or you can jump in. Now, this is my preferred method. I just get the shock over right away, okay? I don't know. Maybe you can tell something about people's personalities by how they get in the water, okay? But you can jump right in. Or you can get pushed in. That's the third way. If you take your Bibles and open to the book of 1 Peter, you will see that the Apostle Peter begins his letter by pushing us into the deep end of divine truth. First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, we looked at these verses last week as a way of introducing the book and its message and saw that Peter writes to us as exiles, exiles. We who love Jesus Christ and follow him are the people of God dispersed throughout the world. And because we belong to God, we know this life is passing and everything in it is expendable. We are a future-oriented people waiting for our Lord to return. And so, while we are here, we must not conform to the world. We must not conform to a culture that rejects God, that is in rebellion against God. Nor can we withdraw from it. So we can neither conform nor can we run and hide. We are resident aliens. Because we are the people of God in the world, we do not belong here. And we know that. We feel that. We see that. And we live life as exiles. But here in his greeting, and his wish is clear at the end of verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, Peter also tells us, though, how we became exiles. In verse 1, he identifies us as elect exiles. So this identity as exiles, put simply, explains our relationship to the world. And to say then that we are elect explains our relationship to God. To be elect exiles means we were chosen into exile. We were chosen for exile, which means that we're God's people because he has acted to make us uh, his own. God has called us out of the world to belong to him. And all of the hope that Peter 
gives us. All of the comfort that he provides echoes this truth that God has secured our relationship with him and has made sure our identity as his people. Now, I know that election is a controversial doctrine in the Christian church. There seems to be no end to the debate over God's sovereign choosing and the exercise of human will. But the doctrine of God's election is all over the Bible. To be honest, it's inescapable. Now, I'm repeating myself this morning some, but that's bound to happen if I preach enough years and you stick around long enough to hear me, that you're going to hear me repeat some things. Because I've mentioned at other times that God's election is a difficult truth for us because, first of all, it's difficult to comprehend how can it be that God has elected, God has chosen, and not fall into a kind of determinism or fatalism that I'm just a robot then. I didn't really choose. I really didn't make any decisions. Because at the same time, we do exercise will. That's why we can sing a song, I have decided to follow Jesus in good conscience and know that we mean it and that it's true. We do decide. So how do these two things work? How can these, both of these things be true? It's difficult to understand. It's also a blow to pride because it removes any inclination we might have to take some kind of credit for our salvation. We understood it. We grasped it. And I also think that because it is controversial, we want to categorize it as something that is unimportant for us as the people of God. We want to put it in that category of, you know what, this is just one of those things that Christians disagree over, and it's not important. It's not crucial. Now, I do not believe that someone has to understand and hold to the biblical doctrine of election to be a Christian. In fact, when we became Christians, very few of us, if any of us, had a clue as to what election was. None of us came to Christ saying, oh, well, I must be elect. None of us reasoned out, I'm elect, therefore I will decide to follow Jesus. We heard the gospel call. That might have been through uh, someone proclaiming the word. That might have been through a friend. It might have been in just reading the Bible. Whatever it was, we heard the gospel call. We recognized it as true. God convicted us through the gospel, and we responded in faith, I have decided to follow Jesus. None of us understood election at the point of being saved. And so we want to then say, well, it's just another one of those things that divides Christians. But I would say that grasping the doctrine of election is crucial for every Christian. And let me give you a few reasons why. It's crucial for every Christian, first, because it produces a deep faith. It produces a deep faith. Christians who grasp election weather life's great storms because they have an anchor 
that is grounded in God's plans and purposes for their lives. God has elected me. God is at work. God has initiated this. God is doing this. And because God has started it, God will finish it. And he is in control of all of these circumstances. That's an anchor. That's an anchor that somebody who does not hold to election, whether they've never heard it or understood it or whether they've said, no, I, no, God would never do that because then I'm not a free choosing, free thinking person and God's priority is to make sure my free will is intact. They do not have that anchor. They do not have that depth of understanding. And so they can comprehend disaster. They can comprehend suffering. They can comprehend the human condition because they grasp the doctrine of election. On the other hand, it, without it, we end up with, I believe, a shallow faith. A shallow faith. Secondly, grasping the doctrine of election produces a durable theology. It produces a durable theology. Coming face to face with what the Bible teaches about God's election provides for the believer the clearest understanding of God's character, God's being, who he is as sovereign, who he is as king. Understanding his purposes in the world and history what it means for God to be on a throne. And this guards against error. It guards against man-centeredness. It guards, guards us against treating God as though he's in a changing, malleable, um, put-into-a-box God that we can always define, always categorize, and comprehend. No, he is king. And just because we exercise will and make decisions does not mean that God is not sovereign. It does not mean that God does not choose or elect. Grasping that produces a durable theology. And I believe it guards us against man-centered religious activity where our values and our needs become the center of our thinking. And the reason we proclaim the gospel, we are not the center of the gospel. Thirdly, grasping the doctrine of election produces wonder-filled worship. Wonder-filled worship. You see, when you really wrestle through, and we do have to wrestle with it, but when you really wrestle through God's divine election, you end up feeling small, small. And when you enter the presence of God, that is exactly what you should feel. You should feel small. You should feel insignificant in comparison to him. That's what you ought to feel. The doctrine of election is one of the things that brings us that smallness 
Because it is in our own smallness and in our own insignificance that God's worth and his greatness are magnified. And it is that overwhelming understanding of God's greatness and his majesty that fills us with purpose, with glory, with joy. Because everything begins with him and ends with him, including your salvation. Fourthly and lastly, grasping the doctrine of election produces comfort and strength. It produces comfort and strength. If your salvation and your eternity depend on God's sovereign election, then your struggles and your failures don't determine your relationship with God. And I believe that this is the primary purpose when the New Testament explains God's election. It is not up for theological debate. It is revealed to us to comfort us. It's revealed to strengthen us. One of the greatest examples of this is Romans chapter 8, and we'll look at a couple of these verses in a few minutes. But Romans chapter 8, all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he predestined, and those he predestined, he, and so on. And then Paul moves from there to say that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, and that nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing. That is because of God's divine election, his foreknowledge, his predestination. That's how you can know and stand to be more than conquerors in this life, knowing that nothing can separate you from his love. That's a sovereign love. Only a sovereign love can keep you, no matter the height, depth, angels, demons, life, death. So grasping the doctrine of election is crucial for every Christian. Now, that's all for free, okay? That could have been a sermon in and of itself. That's all for free, and I want you to understand that. Because in 1 Peter... Peter explains that we are exiles because God has elected us. Despite our sin, despite our blindness, despite our failure to see him as the glorious God that he is, despite our own incapacity to love him, honor him, worship him, God has chosen us. And Peter is saying that know that you are chosen for exile. That is comfort. That is strength while you are in exile. Now, verse 2 then, Peter reveals three aspects of God's choosing. Three aspects of God's choosing us. And you can see them here in these three phrases in verse 2. According to, by, and for, right? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. 
in the sanctification of the Spirit and for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So first of all, we have been chosen for exile according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, what does this mean, foreknowledge? Does it mean that God, at some point before time began, looked down the tunnel of time and saw that you and I would respond to the gospel with faith and then said, because I see Sean will respond with faith, therefore I will choose him, I will elect him. Is that what foreknowledge means? That's what some people will say it means. Well, we see the same words in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29, which I just referred to, but I want you to see them. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Here, foreknew designates a relationship that God established with those he predestined all before he called them. And what about Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23? This is Peter, our author here, who is preaching on the day of Pentecost and says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There we see both things in operation, don't we? Both sides of this. We see the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and yet they stand culpable for deciding to crucify and kill Jesus. Now wait. Peter means that God looked down the tunnel of time, saw this happening, that this would happen, and thus he knew that they would crucify Jesus, and therefore he wrote it into the plan? Sorry, no way. There is no way that's what that means. God designed. God planned. God foreknew Peter will say it a different way later on in chapter 1, verse 20, that Christ himself was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but made manifest, made known in the last times for our sake. So when Peter writes to us as elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God, he means that God's foreknowledge drew up the blueprint for saving his people. A blueprint is not a reaction. It is not a response. It is predetermined design. 
As God the Father forms a people for himself, the blueprint drafted by his foreknowledge includes you. And so you have been chosen for exile because God the Father pre-established a relationship with you before he ever created you. Now that is the deep end of the pool. Now this doesn't mean that your will and your choice aren't involved in the process. But it does mean that you exercise your will within God's purposes, not outside of them. And this should be humbling. It's not you. You are not the center of it. I am not the center of it. And it's also comforting. Exile, with all of its hardships, is according to plan. That alienation that you feel, that, that reaction that you have to immorality, to injustice, that longing for God to reign and to establish justice, to establish righteousness. That is all purposeful. That is all part of the design. That is part of the blueprint. So first of all, we have been chosen for exile according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Secondly, we have been chosen for exile by the sanctification of the Spirit. The sanctification of the Spirit. Now, I know that your Bibles say in the sanctification of the Spirit, but this is a preposition, it's a word that can be translated either way. I think it makes a lot more sense here to, to translate it as the word by in English. Well, we would say by the sanctification of the Spirit. We have been chosen for exile by the work of God, the Spirit, who sanctifies us. Now, sanctification, the word itself, is the act of setting apart something or someone from the common or ordinary for a special purpose or a special use for a special relationship. It's what we mean when we say make holy. To make something holy is to sanctify it. It's to set it apart. And usually when we think of making holy, we think of moral purity as well. But the real idea of the word is that it's set apart for something special, some special purpose. And we sometimes use the word sanctify or sanctification to mean the process of becoming holy. That is, spiritual growth, overcoming sin, overcoming temptation, our thoughts and our actions becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in the process of being sanctified. We understand that that is part of our salvation, is that there is an ongoing work that God will someday finish. In fact, Peter goes on to talk about this later on in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. That's what Peter's talking about. Be holy. 
practice out, walk out what you are. But the New Testament uses the word sanctification or sanctified just as often to mean something that's already completed in our lives. So in one sense, we are in the process of being sanctified, but in another sense, we have already been sanctified. That's already completed. The Christian is already set apart to God. You already belong to him. You are not in a process of belonging to God. Let me give you a couple examples of how sanctified is used. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So right there with having been washed and having been justified, being made right with God is this, you were sanctified. You have already been set apart to him. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10 We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So once for all offering, and you have been sanctified, completed. You are already set apart to God because of Jesus' death. And look at 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved. Here we go. I told you, it's everywhere, right? God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. This work of the Spirit, then, is to sanctify us. Peter is telling us that the Holy Spirit, watch, executes the blueprint. If God the Father is the architect whose foreknowledge has drawn up the blueprint, then God the Spirit is the craftsman who makes it a reality by claiming ownership of us and setting us apart to God. He makes the plan a reality. So the Holy Spirit is present in us. He is present with us. And his presence in us and with us is what sets us apart. You've already been set apart as ones who are holy to God. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't still a process of sanctification continuing in our lives. We know that. But that transforming work takes place because of what the Holy Spirit has already completed by setting you apart to God. He's already sanctified you. So no matter how you stumble, 
No matter how you wrestle with the flesh and the, the world and temptation, and no matter how those times come when you find yourself doubting, am I even really a Christian? God's sanctification of you holds true. You already belong to him. That's why the New Testament calls upon us to walk out what we already are. The identity is already set. You already belong to him. God has chosen us for exile by the sanctification of the Spirit. Thirdly, here we see in verse 2, we have been chosen for exile for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. Now, this is the goal for which God has chosen us into exile. The obedience and the sprinkling, I know you read them, they sound like two different things, but they're really the same thing. It's two phrases put together to describe one idea or one relationship, really. And the connection is found in Exodus chapter 24, which is the backdrop for Peter's words here in verse 2. Exodus chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Now remember, the people are wandering. They have been delivered up out of Egypt, the Exodus, and they are in the wilderness, depending on God for their lives and their sustenance, and God is giving them the law. God is giving them that which will call them out and define them as a different people group from the rest of the world, from the other nations. And God has demonstrated through his sovereign power by delivering them up out of the hand of Egypt, the world power at the time, and showing his own divine majesty and, and demonstrating before the eyes of the nations, these are my people. He is now giving them a law to uh, to shape them, to form them as his people. Moses came, verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. Verse 4, and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings, uh, peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, will, uh, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you 
in accordance with all these words. It is obedience and sprinkling with blood that form the covenant relationship between God and his people. The people, they pledge obedience. We will obey you. The Lord sprinkles them with the blood of the sacrificed animals. Now, Moses is the one, but he is representing God. He is mediating this covenant. It is the Lord who sprinkles them with the blood of the sacrificed animals to set them apart as those belonging to him through this special covenant. By picking up these same words, Peter is saying, That God's goal for choosing us is to bring us into a covenant relationship with himself. Though it is a different covenant. A better covenant. A new covenant. And this covenant consists of obedience and sprinkling of blood, Jesus' blood. But Peter is pointing back to Exodus chapter 24 And he's pointing out that the the law and the prophets have already pointed forward to what God was going to do. That is another example of God's election, his foreknowledge, the blueprint being worked out. But Peter is picking this up and he's saying it now has its greatest meaning and reality for us, the people of God now. Because it is Jesus' blood. And Jesus' blood makes all the difference. Because being sprinkled with his blood is sufficient to deal with your sin. It is his blood that sets us apart to God because it is his sacrificial death. It's what the blood means here. His death. And it's that that deals with the sin that separates us from God and deserves his judgment. The sin that marks us for judgment. But the sprinkling with blood is placed together with obedience here. And we need to make sure that we do not skip over this, that we don't neglect it. For the nation of Israel, obedience to the law was their part of keeping the law. And I think sometimes that we... We think that because we are saved by faith alone, not by our own works, our works could never merit, our righteousness that we produce on our own could never earn God's grace. We could never achieve our salvation. No matter how hard we try, no matter how often we try to turn over a new leaf, No matter how often we take our own morality and our own lives into our own hands, we could never do enough to pay the price to atone for our sin or make ourselves right before God. We could never change our own hearts. Because we understand that we are saved by faith alone, though, we tend to think that obedience is no longer part of the scenario. Because we take this word obedience and we equate it with self-effort. Obedience is what I do. 
It's my part. And if I obey, then all I'm doing is keeping a bunch of rules. I'm checking off boxes. That's what obey is to us. We have to unwork this. We have got to get through this and get to what the New Testament says about obedience because obedience is just as essential to the new covenant as it is the old. Here are the words of Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 24. And notice the similarities with 1 Peter. Notice the the similarities. In fact, I I think these these Old Testament passages for the Apostle Peter are just so ingrained in him. He has so absorbed them that they, they are coming through now. Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you. To walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. So this work of God, this promise given through the prophet Ezekiel to call those dispersed to cleanse them, to transform the heart, here given in language of a a heart transplant, really. I'll take out the heart of stone, one that has no capacity to love me, to know me, to obey me, and I will replace it with a heart of flesh, one that is soft, in other words, one that is living So there is this transformation, this heart transplant. I will give you a new heart, a new capacity to know me, to love me, and to obey me. Putting the spirit within us enables us to obey and makes us his people. But you can't remove the obedience. And I want you to think back to Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching the first gospel message, what is the response of the people who hear him? They are cut to the heart. They're convicted. And how do they respond? What do they say? What must we do? What must we do? How do we respond? How do we react? They know they are guilty. They recognize that they have crucified their own Messiah. Now what must we do? And how does Peter answer? Repent and believe. That's a command. And so can you be saved without repenting and without faith? No. 
Can you repent and believe without responding to the command to repent and believe? No. So even in believing, the act of faith is obedience to the gospel's command. And the gospel does not invite, the gospel commands you. The gospel commands you to repent and to believe. And so there is no way to exercise faith and it not be obedience. It is not a work by which you merit God's grace. But it is impossible to separate faith from obeying God. In fact, Peter later on here in the letter will, uh, will describe those who reject the gospel, who reject Jesus as those who are disobedient to the message. By not believing, they persist in disobedience. Listen, you have been chosen for exile, and the goal is not just... Not just to say, ah, by faith and grace. It is obedience and sprinkling by the blood. Because it's the blood of Christ and only the blood of Christ that atones for our sins. But that relationship, even the new covenant, Ezekiel chapter 36, even the new covenant has obedience as part of that relationship. We are called to obey God. So this work of God then in calling, cleansing, transforming the heart, putting the spirit within us enables us to obey. And it makes us his people. And so we have then the Father, don't we? We have God the Father designing our salvation, including our living in exile for a time. That's part of his purpose. That's part of the plan. And we have God the Holy Spirit who sovereignly executes the blueprint, who, who works to call us, to convict us, to convert us, to dwell within us, and to make our identity as God's people real. And then we have the Lord Jesus Christ himself who is the centerpiece of the blueprint, the centerpiece of the work. It is his death that forges the covenant between God and his people. And so when I say that Peter pushes us into the deep end right off the bat, it is not only the doctrine of election, but it is the doctrine of the Trinity. And this this is unique to the Christian faith. Understand that. It is understanding that God is one. There is one God. And yet there are three persons. The triune Godhead. Another unfathomable truth that we accept by faith and we wrestle to understand. But that deepens us. That gives us durable theology. That comforts us. These things are crucial for us to understand. And here he is, the one true God, the only God. 
displayed for us by the Apostle Peter as the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. They are all at work. They have all brought about this salvation to make us the people of God. So Peter reminds us then, okay, right at the beginning of his letter, he's forming a foundation. He's pointing to this fundamental truth so that we can understand what he's going to say to us as exiles, what it means to live life as exiles. Because he reminds us that living life as exiles doesn't mean having no identity because it's going to feel that way. That's going to be the experience at times. It doesn't mean having no purpose because we're going to wonder at times, how do we belong? How do we, how do we survive? How do we exist in this life and in this world? Living life as exiles doesn't mean having no hope The fact that you are outcasts, that we are aliens and strangers, only confirms our identity as God's people. We are exiles precisely because God has wonderfully given us all these things through election, through choosing us and making us his own people. And his purposes cannot fail, right? Right? 